open your Bibles with me to Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. So if you can put a ribbon in one of those and have the other one ready, Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. In this idea of building something eternal, last week we looked at the subject of eternity. And this idea of building something eternal, it, it is obvious that it's something that must be done on purpose. And today I would like to look at this subject of eternal prayer. Eternal prayer. And one of the things that... Um, that I have noticed in my own prayer life is so often the things that I pray for, they're for right now. It's I need something right now. You know, so if I'm driving down the highway, God, please remove this truck from the world. Rapture them out. Obliterate them. I I don't want them to go to hell. Take them to heaven right now, please. I find myself praying for things that are immediate wants, immediate needs, or for things that are just common to this life's existence, right? So you, so-and-so is having a headache, we're going to pray for that headache. Or things that are serious, Joby Jimerson's in the hospital, we're praying for her, she, had, she, had, she has had a stroke. Other prayer requests that, that are being circulated through the church right now that are very important to us. Uh, folks have, have loved ones that are going home to be with the Lord. And these are very serious things that while they are immediate needs, they're much bigger than the truck that was driving in front of me on the highway. It's interesting. And yet, even for those needs that are so big in our lives right now, I wonder if those are eternal things that we're praying for. So I want to look at this subject of eternal prayer. We're building something eternal. So let's look at the definition of eternity. This is from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Duration or continuance without beginning or end. Duration or continuance without beginning or end. So only God is eternal, right? The world had a beginning. God did not have a beginning. The world had a beginning. Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. The world had a beginning. The Holy Spirit of God did not have a beginning. They are co-eternal, co-existent, co-powerful. We believe in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Existing throughout all eternity. That's the God that we worship. So when we're praying, if we're going to pray eternally, then we have to pray to the God who only inhabits eternity, all right? So Webster goes on, he says this. By repeating the idea of any length of duration, with the endless addition of number, we come by the idea of eternity. And it's interesting when, uh, so uh, I've been working on a book for a long time that God willing will be finished in the next millennium maybe, but... I was writing on the influence of Greek philosophy on the text of Scripture. And I'd always heard that, uh, so you know that there are different lines of manuscripts that underlie the text of the Bible. And when you look at the influences on those manuscripts, what we've heard is that Greek philosophy had an influence through different men. So I started studying Greek philosophy, and I spent quite a bit of time reading Greek philosophy and learning about these things. And something that I found out, there was a guy, his name was Zeno of Aletheia. 
And Zeno was really the first one, this is about four or 500 B.C., who started trying to, to wrestle with this concept of infinity. And this, so not Buzz Lightyear, to infinity. So just the young people are back now. It's it, but the idea of, of eternity, and here's the problem. Philosophy cannot give us an explanation of eternity because we are finite creatures. We inhabit time. And so, and we know that if the preacher goes too long, we've inhabited too much time in this place. We are creatures of time. And the Baptist salute, have you all seen the Baptist salute? That's it. Well, I'm preaching. Because we're people of time. We inhabit time. So even an understanding of eternity, what are we going to do in eternity? Have you ever heard someone say this? I feel like I'm going to get bored in eternity. I've heard people make that statement. Well, you won't get bored because God is there. So, but, but this idea of eternity, how do we pray if we're people of time? How do we learn how to pray prayers to a God that inhabits eternity? So let's review last week. There are three basic responses that people have to eternity. And the first is fear. Where am I going to spend eternity? How can I know for sure where I'm going to spend eternity? First John 5.13 says it this way, but these are written to you that believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. You can know. Now, how many of you know that there are people who attend other churches that think that if you say you know for sure that you're going to heaven, that they think that's some kind of arrogance or they think that, that you're better than them. No, 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 no. I think that Jesus Christ gave us the gift of eternal life. So you can't be arrogant about a gift. God gave it to us. I'm so glad that I know for sure that I get to go to heaven when I die because I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior and he gave me that free gift of eternal life. Remember, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon from last week, but let me just make this point. Really important that we get this. Salvation is not a process. Some people have this idea that, yes, you have to believe in God, but then you have to behave a certain way until either the Lord returns or until you die. That you have to keep doing these things in order to be able to go to heaven. That is just not true. The difference between biblical Christianity and every other faith is this. That what Jesus Christ did is done. He tasted death for every man. God accepted that sacrifice. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his saints. Salvation is an exchange that takes place at a point in time. And at that point, I give Jesus my sin and he gives me his righteousness. Can I ask you a question? Who gets the better deal? We do. That's what grace is all about. Uh, God has nothing that I need. He is completely self-sufficient. He does not need me. I need everything that he has. Because when it comes to righteousness, I don't have anything. So a lot of people, they look toward eternity with fear. But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't have to have fear. Sometimes people look toward it with doubt. And they say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but will he really save me? I love this verse. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. 
For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I don't have to keep it. He keeps it. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Isn't that good? That's the God that we worship. And then there's a third group, and it's denial. And these are the people that say, I don't really believe in eternity. So? They'd be like me saying, I don't believe in gravity, and I just start floating away. Come back. If you just believe in gravity, you'll come back. See, my belief in gravity says nothing about gravity, but it says a lot about me. And a person's belief in eternity says nothing about eternity or the God that inhabits eternity, but it says a lot about the person who holds that view. And so if we're going to understand eternity, we have to understand eternity is real. There is a God that inhabits eternity, and we are going to step into eternity the moment that we die. And there are only two places where we will end up, either heaven or hell. Those are the only two options. Hell is where we all deserve to go. Heaven is where we can go if we receive the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ is offering to all. Praise God for that. Okay, that's the review. If we're going to build something eternal, we have to have a foundation. What is the foundation that we're going to have? Well, the Bible says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But that doctrine is based on Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. We are building it on Jesus Christ. So, if we're going to pray... How do we do this? How do we pray based on our foundation, who is Jesus Christ? How do we pray eternally? How do we understand this concept of eternal prayer and pray eternal prayer? So let's look at our text, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 9. So Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. He's gotten good reports about their faith. And so he says in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Praise God. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Keep Colossians. We're going to be going back and forth. On these two texts. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in, your, in my prayers. So how does Paul pray for the church at, Philip, or at Ephesus? He says this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward? Look at this. Who work really hard. What are those next two words? Who believe 
according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Lord, help us as we study your word now. And Lord, I know that there are people who are in the midst of immediate needs right now. Immediate needs. There are young people about to step into their careers. There are young people about to graduate. There are young people who are thinking about the next steps they're going to make. So, Lord, we have people who are stepping into the next step of their lives, and we have other people making the next step into eternity. And then we have people in every stage of life in between. Lord, for all of us, help us to have this understanding of what prayer is genuinely about. In Jesus' name, amen. So why should we pray? Why should we pray? This is interesting to me. This is a different question than why do we pray. Why should we pray is often a different question than why do we pray. I think it was Corey Ten Boom who said that we use God as our spare tire rather than as our steering wheel. That's interesting, isn't it? And so why why should we pray? Number one, I should pray that God's will be accomplished in the world. That's where I need to start. I need to pray that God's will be accomplished in this world. And Jesus said that, of course, in Matthew 6, 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's holy, and we need to to exalt that name. And then he said this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So now, this is I always ask this whenever I read this verse. If I pray this, will God's will be done on earth? And if I don't pray it, will God's will not be done? It's an interesting question, isn't it? No, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's will is going to be accomplished in this world. Right? So now, then why do I pray this way? Why did Jesus say, pray this? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Why are we supposed to pray that? There's no comfort to us in that prayer if we are not personally aligned with God's eternal purposes. So what if my will is different than God's will? And you know that often my will is different than God's will. Right? Have you ever been so mad you wanted to kill somebody? If you had had the opportunity, you would have killed them. You've already committed murder in your heart. How many of you think God wanted you to kill that person? No. My will is different than God's will. We've all committed adultery in our hearts and in our minds. You know, when when we have had lust. That's what Jesus said, right? If a man looks on a woman to lust after he's committed adultery in his heart already. Is that what the Bible says? Is it? Did I do that? Because someone made me do that? No, Jesus said it's not that which enters into a man that defiles a man, but that which proceeds out of him. I sin because I'm a sinner, and I choose to sin because I like it. Now, am I alone? How many of you can testify that that's kind of your testimony? Remember what Paul said, that which I would do, that I do not. And that which I would not do, that I do. Who can deliver me from the body of this death? That's what Paul prayed. He said, I I find this war in my spirit, that my flesh wars against my spirit. So, so often what I want, my will, is not God's will. So why should I pray, thy will be done? So that I can become aligned with God's will and God's purposes in the world. 
That's what I'm supposed to do. There's no comfort to us if we're not personally aligned with God's purposes. So what does prayer, what does praying with eternal purposes do? Well, what it does, I should pray that God's will will be accomplished in the world, and I should pray that my will is aligned with God's will. When I pray the way that God tells me to pray, that is helping me, it's, it's realigning my prayer life. This is interesting. I like what it says in 1 John. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask, what, what are those next two words? Anything. That's real quiet. It's up on the screen for you. If we ask what? Anything. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. But if we don't know what God's will is, how can we pray that way? Very interesting. I should pray that God's will be accomplished in this earth because when I do that, then what that does is it aligns me with God's will. And we're going to learn more about how we should do that. But I can tell you this, my prayer life, my prayer life, when I don't focus on praying biblically, I am almost exclusively focused on me and mine. Can anybody else testify that that's kind of the way that you are? We need to redirect our prayer. We need to redirect our prayer to God's eternal purposes and then align our will with God's will. So I know this, and I know all of you know this. How many of you had ever heard, thy will be done? How many of you ever heard that? Anybody here? You've, you've actually heard that. So we know this. You know, I guess it was Chesterton who set out to write a new orthodoxy. And he said, I am like he who with the utmost daring discovered that which had been discovered before. That's kind of the way I feel. You know, okay, so pray thy will be done. And you're out there saying, Pastor, okay, we know that. We've heard this. So the question comes, how do I do it? I know I'm supposed to pray this way. I know that that's biblical, but how do I do it? Well, I guess the first thing that I need to ask myself is what am I trying to accomplish with my prayer? Why am I doing this? What, what is my goal in praying? What am I trying to accomplish? Now, this is a sobering question. When you examine yourself, was it Socrates that said the, the unexamined life is a life that's not worth living? I, I wonder when we examine ourselves, boy, sometimes it's, it's a sobering thing. I, I told somebody this the other day, a guy in my wedding, his name was Paul Rasmussen. So Paul was about six foot five, and just crazy good-looking. He, he ended up being on one of those shows like The Bachelor or whatever. He was just a crazy good-looking guy. And what I noticed, so it was before uh, Laura and I were married, so we're in college. And I noticed that when I was with Paul, I was invisible to the girls. I did not exist. And I, I remember thinking, that's such a bummer. Well, one day we were walking into the mall, and there, Paul and I, and there was a, a, the, it was all mirrored glass on the outside of this mall. And as we walked up, I, I saw Paul next to me. And I could see us both very clearly. And then I understood why I was invisible <laughs> to the girls when Paul was there because he was so much better looking than me. And honestly, it was a little discouraging. I learned two things that day. Number one, I'm really not that great looking. And number two, I'm much shorter than I thought I was. It's interesting 
when you really examine yourself in the comparison, in comparison to God and to God's purposes, that can be a really sobering thing. So as we examine our prayer life, I've got a couple of questions. And this is, this is going to seem a little harsh. But this is for me as much as it's for you. Do I treat God like an ATM? You've heard me say this before. I heard someone else say it. I stole it. Most of us never ask God for anything that Bill Gates couldn't give us. Isn't that sobering? Do I treat God like an ATM? Now, the Bible does say that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It does say that. Now, for us, I doubt any of us were really worried about where our bread was going to come from this week. We need to be more thankful for what God has provided us. Is that, does that make sense? I don't need to pray, God, please provide food for me. No, I need to pray, God, please help me not to eat so much. It's a different, different situation. And the idea is focusing on the giver. But do I treat God like an ATM? Or ah, is he my celestial wrong writer? Oh, God, this is such a terrible thing. You need to fix this. When what the Bible tells us to do is to endure patiently whatever it is that we're going through. Why? So the world can see a difference between people who trust in God and people who trust in their own devices. It's interesting. This one's really... Don't get mad at me about this next one. Don't don't get mad at me. Oops. Do I treat God as my lapdog? God, fix this. God, give me this. God, heal this. God, do this. How many... Be honest with me. How many of you have ever caught yourself ordering God to do something in your prayer? Be honest with me. How many of you ever caught yourself doing that? I do that all the time. And see, this is where when I understand eternal prayer, it changes the way that I approach God. And it's interesting. Little children, little children are not afraid of their father. Right? And so 1 John chapter 2, I write... Unto you, little children, because you know that your sins are forgiven. What's the the childlike understanding? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Praise God for that God. Amen? I'm glad that my sins are forgiven. Ah, but I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. It's interesting that at some point you have to move from just acknowledging daddy to acknowledging father God. What, what, what brings that? It's maturity. And just in our own personal experience, it's so interesting that when you're 15 or 16, dad doesn't know a whole lot. But then you get married and all of a sudden, dad, what am I supposed to do with this? How many of you, honestly, you experienced that in your own life? I did. It's so interesting to see that. And that's the same maturity that we have as we grow to know God. So let's look at this. Keep your place in Colossians Here's some key questions to help us understand the concept of eternal prayer. Some key questions. Number one, who am I praying to? And you don't have to turn to this text. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Who am I praying to? Isaiah 57, 15. Have you ever heard someone say this? Who do you think you're talking to? Have you ever heard somebody say that to you? Who do you think you're talking to right now? Look at who God is. Oh, I got to say this. Who am I praying to? So the question I'm answering there is, who is God? So I heard Ravi Zacharias say this one time. He, he uh, was taking a test, and it was a question about God. I can't remember what the question was. And he said, the only question I could think of that was harder would be explain God and give three examples. 
Explain God and give three examples. Remember this. Please never forget this. As I try to preach about God, never forget this. Next week, that's what the whole sermon is going to be about, getting an eternal perspective on who God is. The Bible 70 sometimes says God is. Next week, we're going to look at some of those. It won't be 70 some of them, but we're going to look at what the Bible says about who God is. And the best way to describe God is simply to use the words of Scripture because anytime we attempt to describe God using language, we diminish him because he's indescribable. But I'm going to try and give a few things from Scripture about who it is that we're praying to. Look at the way the Bible describes him in Isaiah 15. It says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Who is it that we worship? We worship the high and lofty one who only, he's the only one who inhabiteth eternity. He's the only one. Who am I praying to? What is he like? A.W. Pink said, God is solitary in his excellency. There's no one like God. Then that's what the Bible says. Who is like our God? I like what, listen to what John Gill. So John Gill was the predecessor to uh, Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said this, God only is essentially, originally, and underivatively, perfectly, and immutably holy. That's who we're praying to. And, and here's what happens to me. And this message is not about me, but I hope that some of you identify with me in, in my prayer struggles. Sometimes when I go and, and I know that I need to ask God for something, because I have some understanding of his holiness, and I also have an understanding of my own sinfulness, I don't feel like I can ask him that. You ever feel that way? That's who we're praying to. This holy, lofty God. That's who we're praying to. Who is he? Well, he's God. That's who we're praying to. We're not praying to Bill Gates. We're not praying to someone who can give us something because he has earned something himself. We are praying to the one who is completely self-sufficient. So number one, who is he? Number two, what can he do? What can he do? Let's look at Ephesians. Look at this with me. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. And what is the... So this is what Paul is praying they know. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places? Who am I praying to? What can he do? He can do anything. We need to recognize his mighty power. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers or things created by, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. That's who we're praying to, folks recognize the power. I don't know about you guys, but often I feel impotent in prayer. I am not impotent in prayer if I'm praying to an omnipotent God. Can I say that again? 
I am not impotent in prayer if I am praying to an omnipotent, all-powerful God. I need to recognize that he is able to answer my prayers. That's who I'm praying to. So who is he? He's God. What can he do? He can do anything. But there's a third question that comes up. How do I pray for others then? Because we know that intercession, praying for others, ought to be a more important part of our prayer life than praying for ourselves. How many of you would agree with that? It helps us to keep from being selfish and focusing on our own needs when we pray, first of all, for God's will, and secondly, for God's will in the lives of others. Then when my own needs are third, then I'm getting things in the right perspective. That has to be on purpose, and that's a very mature thing. So what should we pray? First of all, we need to pray that they know God. So look at, Coloss- look at Ephesians chapter 1, and look at verse 17. This is the prayer that Paul prayed. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. All right, so, now as I'm looking out, busy weekend, summer weekend, lots of stuff going on, and I'm watching folks fall asleep right now. So help me out. I wish I were a more engaging speaker. But we're talking about praying to the eternal God. If I'm going to pray for Ben Young, what I need to pray, first thing that I need to pray is that he really knows God. That he knows God. Do you see what it says in the way that it says it? Verse 17 again. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation... In the knowledge of him. So how do I have wisdom and revelation? How do I have that? I don't know wisdom unless I know God. And I certainly don't know how to understand God's revelation without knowing the one who revealed it. I need to know God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So how can I pray? What is the best way to pray for people? God, help them to know you better. Help them to know you better through your word. Understand, that's the heartbeat of everything we're doing here. People have a very superficial bumper sticker understanding of God. Man, you can't pray eternal prayers without knowing who you're praying to. And you can't know what he wants unless you know who he is. And you can't know who he is unless you know him through his word. Amen? Are you all with me on that? Okay, let's move on. So, pray that they know God. Then, pray that they learn what he has done for them. Pray that they learn what he has done for them. This is where we get our liberty. This is where we get our freedom. Look at Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, I just want to stop there. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, I already mentioned that in my own life, I recognize that my flesh fights against my spirit. Right? And I I want to live according to my flesh. I get mad. I get angry. I get uh, uh, covetous. All these things that we all struggle with because we're flesh. But here's the thing that's so wonderful. God's already delivered us from the power of that. Now, he hasn't delivered me from the presence of it. I still have that struggle in my life every day, but I don't have to yield to it. It doesn't have to have power 
in my life. He's delivered me from that power. Are you all excited about that? You are delivered from the power of darkness. Praise God for that. That's what he's done for me. Not only has he delivered me from the power of darkness. You see that in verse 13 again. And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. You're not working to get into the kingdom. If you're saved, you're in it. That's already happened. He has already done this. Praise God. We're, we're part of the right team. And then, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I'm not working for forgiveness. He already forgave me. And here's the amazing thing. He's already forgiven me of everything I'll ever do. There's nothing you can do that's going to separate. What can separate us from the love of God? Not height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers. Nor, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Praise God for that. He's delivered us. He's given me the, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God for that. Then, not only do we need to pray that they know God and that what God wants them to do, or, or pray that they know Him and what God has done, but pray that they know what He wants them to do. So Colossians 1, and look at verse 9. It's not verse 19. Sorry about that. Verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will. So how do I pray for Jeffrey? I need to pray that Jeffrey knows God, that Jeffrey knows what God has done for him, but also that Jeffrey will know what God wants him to do with his life. Man, how many of you know that there are a lot of people with no direction in life? No direction, no purpose. They just exist when God has so much more for them. So much more. See, I need to pray specifically that he knows that. Do you see how all of a sudden we're elevating our prayer? God, help Ben to have a great life. What does that mean? If you don't know what God wants for him, he can have a great life, humanly speaking. But if it's not the life God has for him, then it's not a great life. Pray that they know what he wants them to do. And then, letter D, this is interesting. Pray that they will learn how he wants them to do what he wants them to do. See, a lot of us know that we're... How many of you know? Be, be honest with me. How many of you know that God wants you to live for him? Would you raise your hands? You know that. It's how he wants you to live for him that becomes the problem. This is why it has to be eternal prayer. See, I need to live according to God's eternal purposes, not to a man's eternal purposes. So Jacob is here somewhere. Where's Jacob at? Back there. So Jacob is my son, second year in college, just finished. And Jacob has plans for his life. He's going to do something with computers. I think that's his plan. I don't know what that is because I don't really know what a computer is. All right? but so, so he has a plan. And that's great. Man, we need people who know how to work with computers. Are you all with me on that? We need that. But I want him to know how God wants him to work with those computers. I want him to know how God wants him to establish a home. I want him to know how God wants him to establish his finances. I want him to know how God wants him to establish his relationships. Do you see the difference? See, we have this worldly view of the future for our kids. We all have that. Some kind of a human success when we need to pray that God will give him direction for what that is. Now, here's the fun thing. 
We have this weird concept. Young people, I know that you guys struggle with this. I know that you do because everyone does. Here's what we fear. We fear that if we surrender to God's will for our lives, he's going to send me to Kenya. I don't want to go to Kenya. I've never been there. I don't even know what it is, but I know I don't want to go there. That's not the way that God works. You know what God does? God puts in your heart, Kenya. 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 And you start praying, God, why do, why do I keep thinking about Kenya? And you start reading about Kenya, and you learn about Kenya. You learn about the people. You learn about the animals. You learn about the food. You learn about the economy. And you start learning about these things. God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do with my life, Kenya? Kenya, Kenya. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's so funny watching kids that go to college and they have a plan for their life. Now, most kids at 18 do not have an actual plan for their lives. Are you all with me on this? I think it's kind of a crazy system that we have. So a kid goes and he starts and I'm going to be an architect. And you, you And you like the idea of being an architect because you enjoy structure and and, and you enjoy some science and then you start taking architecture classes and you say, I hate this. Or I'm going to be an accountant and then you find out what accounting is and you want to just, you know, run an ice pick through your eyeball sitting through the class. If you're going to, if that's what you're going to do, you're not, you don't want to do that for the rest of your life. How many of you are not doing what you initially went to school for? Did you raise your hands? How many of you are not? Hold them up, please hold them up. Young people look around at this. It's interesting. Do you know why? Because it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God gives you the desire and the ability to do his will. So some of you young people, I say, man, you need to surrender. You need to give God your life. And here's what you're hearing. You want me to be a preacher. And I don't want to do that. No, I want you to do what God puts in your heart according to his word to do. That's what I want you to do. Do you know what's going to happen then? You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Here's the idea. So Jacob is my son. I want Jacob to enjoy what he does. When we went to Pensacola and we met with the head of the program, they're talking about all this computer stuff, and Jacob looked at me and said, well, Dad, what do you think? And I said, I don't even know what you guys just said. You're on your own here, son. Can't help you. Can't help you at all. But do you know what I want for him? I want him to have joy and peace in his life as he walks according to God's will and plan for his life. That's how I pray for him. That's how I pray for Lydia. Lydia loves kids. She's going to teach kids. She she might find out she hates kids. Some teachers do that, right? But right now, she loves kids because she hasn't met them yet. (laughs) That's awesome. So her plan for her life is she got a job teaching at a Christian school over in Columbus. She gets to influence those kids. Why would I want something different for her than the desire that God put in her heart? It's interesting, isn't it? But what I want Lydia to know is how does God want her to do that job? How does God want her to influence those kids? How does God want her to live in that place, in that community, in that city? You see, the Bible gives us very clear instruction right here in our text. Look at Colossians 1 verse 11. How are you going to do what he wants you to do? Strengthened with, what are those two words? 
all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this is so cool. He wants us to be able to, to live our lives with joy and with patience. But here's one of the things that happens. We have defined cat. We have categories that have been defined for us. So we've got this weird monastic view of Christianity to where if I have stuff, I must not be right with God. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You know, you have the stories of the monk that lived naked up on top of a pole for years. How many of you think that's what God wants you to do? I don't find that in the Bible anywhere, right? That's just plain weird. And I would say to the young people, don't picture that. He was naked. Okay, don't, don't picture so here, it's really important that we get this. A lot of our understanding of the Christian life and learning to do without came through the dark ages. And it came through these Puritans who were living. They, they had to learn how to live a satisfied and a fulfilled life with almost nothing. We don't have that problem. What we need to learn is how to live a satisfied and a full life with everything. Boy, don't we have it hard. You guys didn't react nearly as much to that as I just said. We have to learn how to live a satisfied and a content and joyful and peaceful life when we have everything. It's crazy what God has given us. And then we feel guilty about it. When I went to Ghana and you know, we preached to all those pastors and trained them all in discipleship. We had a group of college kids with us. This one young man, as he was coming home, he said, man, I feel so guilty with everything I have. I said, man, don't feel guilty. Feel blessed. Give thanks to God. There are reasons why we have things in the United States and they don't have them in Ghana. There are governmental reasons and economic reasons. They have all the natural resources we have. There's a system that undermines it. And God hates a false balance. That system violates Scripture. And if you have a system that goes along with Scripture, then you're going to have stuff. It's just interesting what happens when we obey God. This is not a health-wealth gospel, by the way. This is not a health-wealth gospel. All right, let's go on. i got to finish. Strengthen with all might according to His glorious power. One of the goals of the Christian life is to learn to live victoriously in times of trouble. Notice what it says here. Look at our text again. And it says in verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience. And what's that next word? With joyfulness. See, to be filled with joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. That's the goal of the Christian life, to know how to do that. But I will not drift into this kind of existence. It has to be on purpose. Because we're going to have trouble. I must be filled with the knowledge of God and his will so that when I'm in trouble, he is still God. When I am prosperous, he's still God. C.S. Lewis, who said that God whispers to us in our pleasure and he shouts to us in our pain, right? When, when I'm prosperous, when things are going good, he's still God. I need to walk according to his will. When things are really bad and I don't understand what's going on, he's still God. And I still need to walk according to his will, strengthened by his might. 
with all joy and thankfulness. See, it is the goal of every believer to live victoriously, to suffer meaningfully, and to be courageous in this world. That's who we are called to be. We can only be that if we have a proper understanding of who God is and what he wants us to do. And when we have that, then I know how to pray for you. And you know how to pray for me. See, this only becomes possible as we develop a proper vision of God through his word. I must learn to have an eternal perspective. It's hard for me to look beyond tomorrow. I've got to learn to have an eternal perspective. This is the foundation of our teaching at Grace Baptist. It's Jesus Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's God. What can he do? He can do anything. How should I pray for others? I need to pray for God's eternal purposes in their lives. That's what I have to do. And if I'll do that, then I'll begin building something eternal. Eternal prayer. Eternal prayer. I hope that this changes the way that we pray. And again, I don't think I've said anything earth-shattering today. But I can tell you this. We all need it. Let's all stand together. Lord, thank you again for your word. You are so gracious to us. Lord, it's amazing that you have...